When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder. I'm Adam Coleman, welcoming you into the Cosmic Library, the show in which it's up to you to figure out the hard stuff. So for this season, we've talked about the merging of emotions and laws. We've talked about a book that makes nothing easy. We've talked about endless interpretive struggle in literature. What I'm thinking is ultimately when you're dealing with the Bible, you've got to make some decisions of your own. Even the dreamlike contradictions in the Bible pose a responsibility for the reader to make sense of things. Genesis, for instance, starts with two creation stories that cannot be reconciled completely. In the first one, humanity is created after plants, after beasts, after fish. In the second one, the Adam and Eve narrative, humanity is created before plants even. So here begins the responsibility for you, the reader, to struggle with that. In a second, I'm going to read from the start of Ecclesiastes, from the King James Version. It's a book of the Bible that works as a kind of provocation, challenging so many notions of what people are all about. It's a book that also challenges you to make your own sense of it. Here it is. Vanity of vanities, saith the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What profit hath a man of all his labor, which he taketh under the sun? One generation passeth away, and another generation cometh, but the earth abideth for ever. The sun also ariseth, and the sun goeth down, and hasteth to his place where he arose. The wind goeth toward the south, and turneth about unto the north. It whirleth about continually, and the wind returneth again according to his circuits. All the rivers run into the sea, yet the sea is not full. Unto the place from whence the rivers come, thither they return again. All things are full of labor. Man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. The thing that hath man, it is that which shall be, and that which is done is that which shall be done. And there is no new thing under the sun. Peter Cole has carried along in some of his own poetry, Ecclesiastes' poetic thought about vaporous vanity. So this is a new poem. Um, It's coming out in the my book in the fall, I call it the Quamist's Quare. Quare is a Middle English word for book. And it's based on Ecclesiastes, which I one of my favorite books of the Bible. That and, Le- and Leviticus, I think, are probably my two favorite books. And I guess I was thinking about the vanity of vanities, Hevelevelim. Could I make that new? Could I translate that into my present, my, uh, my present and follow out the line of its thinking? 
um, through Ecclesiastes. So this is just the beginning of the poem. Vapor clouding from coiled shit, hot air from mouths and lips. Face it, said the dark's harpist, is the everything. Everything is. Sick of talk, we babble on, one generation lapping another. Earth remains unchanged forever, shrugs the skeptic. But does it? Wisdom earned learns vexation. The more you know, you know it hurts. The fool knows all and folds his arms closed, then eats angry, his hungry heart out. Better a handful of calm than two of clutching at the wind, two of grasping for the wind, two of chasing after wind. I asked Elisa Gabbard in our conversation about W.H. Auden about the result of an encounter with poetry that challenges the reader with moral provocations. How do you go on with your life after you've been jolted in this way, after something has discomfited you, after you've experienced this moral challenge how does that change you how does that change your day i i would be lying if i said oh yeah like you know reading reading poetry has turned me into an activist <laughs> i don't think that writing poems or reading poems is you know the, the most i could be doing <laughs> to make the world a better place at all is it right to say that it makes your mind world a better place or does it make your mind world a worse place or it does something to your mental landscape to experience this? Yeah. I mean, when I'm reading or when I'm writing, I'm just thinking better than I am at any other time. That's just where I do my best thinking. So yeah, if thinking more and better makes me a better person, great. But even if it doesn't, it does make my life richer personally. I can only hope that I'm thinking in ways that will make other people's lives better too, eventually. Back on the subject of the Hebrew Bible, I asked the novelist Joshua Cohen, what's the role of unreason? And I, I don't mean unreason in a, in a negative way, but the role of something aside from reason. You know, I think a lot of it has to do with um, notions of authority to be direct with you. I mean, I'm, 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 trying to, I'm trying to answer, I mean, these are, I'm sorry about this. These are very difficult questions to answer because I know the theological answers to these things. And I could give them to you, but like, I don't know whether I believe them. I'm constantly, whenever I'm faced with a question about, you know, about Torah or about any of these, of, of these texts, I'm constantly split between, you know, giving you the answer that I know would be an acceptable answer to the people who live within that tradition and believe in it, uh, among whom I do not count myself these days, and then my own personal answer on it, I, which I still have a residue of guilt in knowing that it's irresponsible or feeling that it's irresponsible. My sense of these things, though, from a, from a way that could be useful, let's say literarily, is the real idea of authority. There is this notion of authority devolving onto a rabbinate and a sort of line of succession that passes the tradition from one generation to the next. So much of this tradition then is based on who one has as one's teacher, who one you know, decides to apprentice oneself to. The idea of fidelity to a teacher and fidelity to the school uh, of which the teacher is an exponent 
it lives today, certainly lives today in the, in the Hasidic community, where the Hasidic sects follow their rebbeim, follow their rebbeis. But why I say it's interesting literarily is because there is this notion of, you know, to whom does one apprentice oneself? To whom does one give oneself over? There is a literary analogy to that in the way that as a writer, you know, one chooses one's masters, but is free to sort of give them up and exchange them for others. What's important is not who your master is so much as the fidelity to the tradition that the master represents. That to me is the ultimate devolution of God's authority to man's authority, which begins after uh, the Torah. You know, the, the Torah, the Bible is something that is still so alien, it's so eerie, because it is the only text in Jewish life that is entirely divine. Compared to the length of the Talmud, for example, or commentaries that came after the Talmud, uh, and that continue to this day, the length of the Bible, the Bible's very short. And so it occupies this very, very alien place where, you know, this came down from Shemayim, this came from heaven, this came from God. Judaism is a religion where every other text was essentially formulated by man, for man. To Peter Cole, I asked, is there something about the Bible that demands proliferating commentary? Is there something coded into the book that creates a tradition of commentary and reinvention? Well, one thing is the fact that it's read on an on a annual, used to be triennial in some places, cycle. So there's a kind of endlessness encoded, built into it in a couple of ways. One, as I say, the fact that you read it every year, so every year you come back to it, and unless you're just a total robot, you're thinking about it in relation to your life, the community's life. So it demands a kind of response. Secondly, the tradition of, of rabbinic Judaism, of Talmudic Judaism, of give and take, of questioning, a sort of ultimate value or a supreme value is placed on questioning of texts. The more sacred, the more you question it in a certain way. So that questioning, that sort of skepticism or desire to inquire is part and parcel of, of the tradition. The fact that there are contradictions built into the text or that there are difficult things throughout demands a certain kind of questioning and, and um, exploration and commentary. The thing that I think I'm most hung up on these days, strangely enough, is the fact that also at the very heart of this text, what do you have? You've got this ultimate transparency and ultimate opacity, which is the name of God, the four-letter name of God, which is unpronounceable, and no one really knows what it means. We have ideas about its etymology, having to do with becoming, and the verb to be. When Moses sees God in the, in the encounters, the presence of God in the burning bush, and asks, you know, who will I say send me, sends me back to the people, and he says, um, I am that I am, or I will be that I will be, and that morphs a verse later into yud Hey, vav Hey, Yahweh, as it's written out in things like the Jerusalem Bible, the Catholic Jerusalem Bible, and some other Bibles, but we don't really know what the pronunciation was. It was lost, and that's part of the, let's say, mystique or myth of the whole Bible. So there's that cipher right in the middle of it and all through it. That's what the Song of the, at the Sea or Song of the Sea is about. This yud heh vav heh saves the Israelites. That's that 
as one of two aspects or names of God throughout the Bible is central. I just find that so bizarre and lovely. I mean, I just, it, it's, <laughs> there's, uh, in Psalms it says, Shiviti Yudhei I set God, I set Yahweh, I set these four letters that I don't know and don't understand and, and I'm not sure really what it's all about and don't know how to say before me always. That's encoding that inf- infinitude and that endlessness and that openness into the very heart of it. And even as someone who's not a particularly observant Jew, I mean, Shabbat is very important to me and uh, I observe in my ways. Um, but I find that just one of the strangest, most beautiful things uh, I know. Nothing about the Bible is simple in the usual sense. For all its mysteries, there's also very concrete narrative. Moving through the Torah and into Nevi'im, the prophets, containing narratives of Israelite kingdoms rising and falling. Back to Joshua Cohen. Another thing I get stuck on is sort of the connection between the, the history of civil war, civil strife in the Bible, and... What civil war do you mean? Well, maybe just civil strife between Judah and Israel. The fact that it's this this nation is two nations and is, is sort of riven. You know, from my perspective, when you begin getting into, from the Nevi'im, from the prophets, into the Ketuvim, into the, into the writings, um, and you begin getting into, you know, into the war of the kingdoms, it takes a moment, I think, or it requires you to step back for a moment and in a way silence a newer part of your brain. What you're seeing is the birth of history writing, the attempt to, to even begin writing history. And there's no idea of what history is at this point. You know, it's the idea that we're going to write down events that happened. Why, how, for whom, to what purpose. You have a, a book that for better or worse, and whether you agree or not, is alien, you know, is, is essentially is, you know, is beamed down from the Star Trek Enterprise. And, and that's the Torah. The decision of, of the creation of the canon, of course, comes later. But in the canon that's created, you have this alien book that is beamed down. And then you have the prophets, whose major role is to warn about the destruction of the kingdom of the land that was won after the close of the alien book. And the prophets are warning that the gain just achieved is imperiled. And in the writings afterwards, you have these chronicles of the destruction, you know, of self-destruction too. You slowly have this almost beginning sense that a human is slowly becoming comfortable with the idea of a book written by another human. We have the prophets who, to listen to them, you must accept that the bat kol, right, the divine voice, is speaking through them. So even though they're humans who are moving their mouths, the words that are emanating are the divine spirit or divinely inspired. Texts that are written by uh, or, or generated by groups and then individuals. And I think that this is the slow, this is the slow push from the collective authorship to the hell we live in today of the individual author. It's that fundamental, really, it's the justificatory crisis of, you know, why are these words here? Whose authority certifies these words? What is the reason why we should, you know, hearken unto them? These deeply, deeply fundamental concepts are sort of in play or in play formally here. 
Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. With supply chains becoming more complex, you need to stay on top of the latest logistics developments. So if you work with logistics, you need the Beyond the Box podcast from Maersk. It's the easy way to keep up to date with everything from digital disruption and logistics to the need for supply chain resilience in today's market. Find out more and keep ahead of the game with the Beyond the Box podcast on logistics insights at maersk.com insights. In this hellish world of individual authors, or maybe a hellish world of individuals in general, figuring out our interdependence and collective nature can be tricky. To the neuroscientist Lisa Feldman Barrett, however, there's still a clear basis for collectivity and collective responsibility. We have socially dependent nervous systems. So we have this dilemma. So what does that mean? You know, what does that mean about about how we treat each other? Well, we live in a country where there's free speech, and as there should be, I believe in free speech too, where we are free not to do anything we want, but most things, right? Most things. When, you know, there are some things we're, that are against the law that we collectively agree are, are norms that require punishment if you, if you do certain. But mostly we're allowed to do whatever we want and we're allowed, most things we want and we're allowed to say pretty much whatever we want with some small set of exceptions. But you're not free from the consequences of what you say and do. You bear more responsibility for other people's well-being and they bear more responsibility for yours then you may realize. And so for me, I think it just really highlights the question of who do you want to be? Like, what kind of a person do you want to be? There's a real tangible benefit to treating people with kindness and dignity. It doesn't mean that you have to agree with everybody. It doesn't mean that you don't have to agree. It doesn't mean you have to agree with every idea. It doesn't mean that you can't be offended or that you can't find... Idea, certain ideas distasteful or even offensive. But that doesn't necessarily have to translate into the casual brutality that we see in everyday life, which we, which we, current, we currently live in. And we regulate each other's nervous systems. And that means we bear a certain degree of responsibility to each other that maybe we didn't realize that we had. Now that we're at the end of this season, listeners might have different perspectives on collectivity, on individuality on the way selves blur together, on how to find meaning through this blur. Because we've been following tangents from the Hebrew Bible, a book of struggle, of wrestling, of dreams, a book famous for creating tangents that imply multiple, often multiply conflicting lessons or ideas or problems or questions. I think people who have spent a lot of time thinking about this book have had, ultimately, to make some decisions of their own. To Joshua Cohen, I said, it, I mean, the book has opened up this endless authority dispute or endless, at least, splintering, branching off ramification of, of teachings. There's a very famous moment in Talmud where, you know, I'll make a, a very basic version of it is, you know, there are these two schools that are 
that are arguing over a very fine point of law involving the construction or deconstruction of an oven. It doesn't matter. But, you know, one of the rabbis from one of the schools, you know, essentially says, uh, if I'm, you know, correct, if my interpretation of this is correct, if my ruling on this point of law is correct, let the, the tree uproot itself and replant itself, you know, across the field. So they all kind of what, you look out the window, all the rabbis look out the window, and this tree kind of miraculously uproots itself and runs across the field and replants itself. The other rabbi from the other school says, you know, I don't care, it doesn't matter. And so he says, well, you know, if I'm correct in this point of law, you know, let, you know, the house of study sort of fall upon us and the walls start trembling. And then the rabbi from the other school says, it doesn't matter what God's opinion is. Once God gave us this book, it was ours to do with it as we will. And the allegorical, uh, I mean, it's barely allegorical meaning of this is, is essentially that, you know, once something leaves the realm of the divine, it, it enters the realm of the human, which does not represent a fallen state, you know, in a, in a Christian sense. It represents actually a heightened state because it becomes the responsibility of people who are failed or flawed. It becomes the responsibility of people who are sinful and incorrect and yet have a desire to not be sinful and to be more correct. And once the sort of alien book becomes inalienable to the human, it becomes a test of their moral character. It becomes a test of their, um, of their ethics, both within their own communities and their, their communities relating to other traditions. It's that intense taming of you know, the alien book that I also associate with the taming of dream life. It's the assertion that this must all answer to our waking lives where we all have to live together. My interest in this is, is really in the domestication of something ineradicably strange. Thank you for listening to Mosaic Mosaic, the third season of the Cosmic Library. Our guests this season include Peter Cole, the poet whose new book, Draw Me After, will be out this fall. Elisa Gabbert poet and poetry columnist with the New York Times. Her latest book is Normal Distance. Lisa Feldman Barrett, psychologist, neuroscientist, and author of books including How Emotions Are Made. Tom DeRose, curator at the Freud Museum in London. And Joshua Cohen, the novelist whose books include Book of Numbers, 